Well, good afternoon, good evening, and or good morning, everybody. My name is Dr. Travis Hearn, and I'm joined by my amazing co-host, Mr. Jeffrey Roche. Um, thank you for joining the Holistic Leadership Podcast. Um, today, we have an amazingly special guest in Mr. Steve Cadigan. Um, now, Steve Cadigan is a highly sought-after talent advisor to leaders and organizations across the entire globe. And as founder of his own Silicon Valley-based uh, firm, Cadigan Talent Ventures, Steve advises a wide range of innovative organizations to include Twitter, Cisco, Intel, the Royal Bank of Scotland, Salesforce, and the BBC. Uh, but before launching his firm, Steve worked as an HR executive for over 25 years at a wide range of companies and industries to include Cisco Systems, Electronic Arts, and Cat by serving as the first CHRO for LinkedIn from 2009 to 2012. That's a huge accomplishment. Uh, taking the company from a private firm of 400 employees through an IPO and helping it set up, set itself up to be the powerhouse that it has become today. Uh, and not only that, in August of 2021, Steve published a groundbreaking book on the future of work titled Workquake, Embracing the Aftershocks of COVID-19 to Create a Better Model of Working. There it is. Even before, even before its official release, it realized number one on the Amazon lists of its hot new releases. So, Steve, first question straight out the gate is, can you tell us a little bit about the book and also what, like, why, why, why did you write that book? Well, the book's an interesting story because I had been in the world of talent for my whole career of 30-ish years and had all these ideas that I wanted to share around things and trends that I thought were changing and sources of frustration for employers and employees. And I finished the book pretty much and is about ready to hit send to the publisher. This thing happened. I don't know if you guys heard about it, the pandemic. And it completely, you know, scared the heck out of me because I thought, oh no, what if the pandemic is so fundamentally going to change the future of work that my, my two years of work is just useless. And so I took about six months in, um, to the pandemic and re revisited everything and sort of tried to forecast what I was seeing at the time and six months is, as you know, is just a microcosm of everything that we've been through for three ish years still. Um, but what I was really trying to solve for and the, and the real drive was I was working with organizations around the world to try to help them build more compelling talent strategies. And this groundswell of frustration on the employee side and the employer side. And I was feeling like we we're having the wrong conversation and I wanted to try to center it. I wanted to try to take a different approach to it. And that really inspired me because every time I would give a talk or a, uh, have an intervention in an organization, people would say, where's your book? And I go, it's in my head. So I finally was pushed by a lot of friends, mentors, coaches to say, let's go, let's do this. So I took it on and, and finally got it done. Yeah, that's outstanding. Yes, I, I think there's there's been a lot of books that have been birthed from that pandemic. Mine, I, I wrote a book that was birthed from it. Our last guest had one that was birthed from it. It's just like that. When you When you look at what the pandemic did to leadership and how it shook up the leadership culture. And you look at large organizations and having to change and adapt. And, and that we, we, you, I saw the word, the, the word work quake. And I was like, man, that, if that doesn't sum up what the pandemic did to all of us, mm -hmm. that, that, that new word, I'm not, I really not sure what did. So yeah, it's amazing book. Um, so first question for you is after serving in very large corporations and organizations as an HR leader, what has shocked you most about leadership and about leaders in general? I think that what shocked me the most is I, I think that we have built a model of leadership that has entirely been based upon slow pace, um, that technology is not changing quickly, that the psychology of the workforce isn't changing as fast as it is today, that we don't need as, new, as many new skills as we need today, and that very few leaders are acknowledging that or recognizing that right now. 
that all the architecture work um, and all the models of how we reward and promote and build all these job forms were all designed for a much slower, more predictable, more reliable universe of work. And a lot of that is just not functional in a world where things are changing super fast. And so that's what's really surprising me. And you know, we were talking a little bit off air about this before, but one of the frustrations I think leaders feel is that they got to where they are and they realize their success in old models, being built in old systems and slow moving. And now that it's different, the adoption of new ways of leading, there's resistance to do that because that's not how they got here. They got here by you know, command and control and everyone's got to be in the office and one size fits all. I'm generalizing. And, you know, these models that doesn't really fit in a world where things are changing really quickly, even sort of focusing only on employees, for example, is one of the other things that tr triggers me today. You have a huge army of Tamsin contractors in your universe, adding enormous critical value why are you not including them in training and developing and, and, and thinking about how to add, you know, their value in your organization? So I think it's that, you know, at the same time, I'm trying to describe why uh, it's shocking to me, but I'm also trying to explain why it doesn't shock me because the people who are going to have to decide to make the pivots and to adapt got to those places of power and control through those old models. Yeah, absolutely. And, and Steve, you brought up so many good points. And I do I kind of want to take this into the tech world. Yeah. You are in, yeah, because that's, that's the world that I live in. Mm -hmm. um, but you've been an established leader at LinkedIn, worked at Cisco before. I want to, and with the recent layoffs that, are, that the tech world is having, how, what, is, what are your thoughts on that? How do leaders navigate that? How, have, how should they navigate that? How do we bounce back as a tech industry to be able to continue to lead the employees we have well and to continue to support those who have, who have been laid off? Yeah, that is it's such a cultural moment, you know, having to decide to let people go. Uh, it's really hard. Um, everything in my DNA has always been, you know, try to avoid that at all costs. And so for anyone who's sitting at the precipice of 90% of my expenses are people, um, revenue's not growing, it's flatlining, might be going down. What do I have to cut? Well, you've got a lot to cut. Um, the question is, how creative do you want to be and what are your cultural pillars? So you can lower people's salaries, don't have to cut as many people. You can close buildings, you can try to have, that's usually a big one and increasingly less so in this new more hybrid remote work reality. Uh, there's so many other things that you can try to do. I mean, I've been through the dot-com bubble bursting. I've been through the second mortgage crisis. You stop travel. Um, you know, you, okay, there's no, going to be no bonus. You look for anything you can do, no free soda, like whatever you can do to avoid that. That should be the last thing that you do. And um, because there's real big, you know, your capacity to recruit new people when you do a big cut like that takes a big hit. Because um, trust and leadership is now taking a shot, you know. Um, and I think I, I, when I look at technology, the big tech, where we've seen a lot of these high-profile layoffs. Um, I mean, all of all technology. I mean, technology work is done in every organization, increasingly so, beyond just big tech. Um, and I think what what leaders need to do is, I think, think a lot more creatively and thoughtfully around that action. So, for example. Airbnb did something which I think is just genius. They were so thoughtful and so prepared and so mature in how they did their staff reduction when the pandemic basically 
annihilated their business model. People are not able to go to other people's homes. We've got no business. How are we going to survive? And so what they did was they repurposed their whole engineering and the recruiters that weren't let go to be outplacement, number one. They, uh, th- that was a product that they built, outplacing their uh, you know, employees that are going. They did some things with their compensation strategy such that they accelerated all the vesting for anyone who was new that hadn't met one-year cliff vest. It's never been done before, and there's a huge expense that comes with it. They did so many things like that that they created loyalty for the more loyalty from the people who are being let go. I mean, who like that is a masterclass in, in how to do it. Right. So if you want to learn from some of the best, boom, then you've got people like not to call out any names, but um, well, maybe we'll, we'll call it a few. This um, one outfit that let about 800 people go and blame them for their performance. That's why you're being let go because you are not in better.com. The CEO's Vishal Garg. And I did a whole TikTok that just went completely nuts and had better.com employees thanking me for saying what they wanted to say. I'm like, so you're claiming that, and this is another thing that really has triggered me over the last few months. Oh, we're doing a low performer purge. Oh yeah, look at us. And I'm like, low performer purge, you're basically admitting to all of us you don't know how to lead and grow your people because that's on you. And if you had thousands of low performers, how can you think? So you're basically marketing to your investors. You don't care about the people there and all the people who didn't get let go. What do you think they're thinking? (laughs) There's going to be a matter of time before the six people who were let go on my team that I can't do all their work that they're going to be coming for me. So I better fix my profile, right? So there's unfortunately, this is not something that you want to build a super skill around over the course of your career, right? And that, Travis, is why we get so many people doing it who are like, they're playing what I call from the lawyer's play, the employment lawyer's playbook. They're not playing from the culture playbook and they're doing things like recording the message of letting people go so they did, they don't get it wrong. And it's just like completely, you know, I've taken so many risks over the course of my career um, to the benefit of the culture and people. It's never landed in the lawyer's office, thankfully, but people will never forget that, you know, you, the way you treat them on the way out. And also the biggest common mistake leaders make when they've never done it before is they focus on the message to the person going, not the people who are staying, whose friends you just let go, whose, you know, godmothers and, and siblings and spouses that are, you're letting go. You, you're, you're not talking and they're the bigger concern because they're still there. You know, and now you're putting them into sort of like this limbo land. So I don't know if that's where you were thinking that that question was going to go. But I I wrote a whole blog and a whole playbook. If anyone's interested, just reach out to me around ways of doing this better than others. But it all starts with all the things you can do before you get to that. You know? Yeah, no, that is that's perfect, Steve. And that's that's where we were going with that. There's so many different things that you can do when it comes to individually considering your people and what they need and how they need it. It becomes a coaching thing that's a, it's, it becomes a coaching Correct. opportunity yeah and it, that's that's really what it is and like it, this kind of leads directly into our next question is at, at a conference that, that jeffrey attended you discussed the leadership dilemma and that we used to build this it's a leadership dilemma and that we used to build for stability but today we have to build for instability can you unpack that a, a, a little bit and, and and tell us like what what should leaders be doing differently to address that sure i mean i don't think i have to spend too much time sort of helping people recognize that the future is less predictable than it's ever been. We don't know what's around the corner. 
and our capacity to adjust and adapt to unexpected, uncertain things, supply chains, wars in Russia, price of gasoline, pandemics, our capacity to be able to deal with that is really our biggest competitive advantage. And what the old model of work basically designs to prevent that from happening. Because you're keeping people in the same job for a long time. You can't, you can't move over there. You can't even apply to that department until you've been in this one for two years because, you know, I invested a lot in training you. And there's good reasons and motivations why we built it the way we did. But all that has been designed out to not allow adaptability. And I've, I, we had one moment in Cisco, uh, which is just su such a um, funny story, where all these GEHR execs were hired when we started getting really big. Like we went, when I was there, we went from like, 13,000 to like 40,000. So John Chambers, the CEO at the time, is like, well, we better hire some GE people because Jack Welsh, man, he's a great guy and they know what they're doing. So those people start coming in and saying every quarter we got to fire people. And they'd never, GE didn't have a portfolio of technology. They had assets, right? And so they were more, you know, we need to get the um, operating revenue up. People, get them out. We're like, no, no, no. This is about knowledge workers. Very, very different. Um, and so, you know, it's a different thing, but what they started to do is say, well, you've got to move people around. We're going to force you to move people around. And when you force managers without giving context and support managers, what you're, what they're hearing you say is we're going to rip your best people out and put them somewhere else. And someone else's supposed best people you're going to have. And you're thinking, what motivation do I have? So what they started to do was warp the performance review system to make it look like someone was a high performer, ship the low performers out who they'd rated high performers and keep their good ones because you send a good performer somewhere else that that threatens your time with your family. It threatens your weekends and you know, you're going to have to hire new people. So they they actually you know passively resisted in a really elegant way to try to block that from happening. And so. You know, and he, we're crazy people as, as humans. There's a lot of fun. I could tell you stories all day long, but I think one of the the biggest parts of recognition for leaders today is it's not going to get more. We're not going to have more runway to see in the future. We, when I started my career, we had 10, 15 year planning meetings. Come on, 10, 15 year month, you know, month meetings is what we're doing now. And so I think what we have to appreciate is the, sometimes the more new people we have gives us more new ideas more capacity to adapt and adjust. And when we were sitting around as a leadership team at LinkedIn and I started there, we were six years old as a company. And when something crazy would happen, we'd sit around and the CEO would say, Hey, when you're at Google, how'd you deal with this problem? When you're at Facebook, how'd you deal with this problem? When you're at Salesforce, when you're at Adobe, when you're at Cisco. And we all brought that, you know, different environment, different cultural perspective and different leadership styles together to solve and all these organizations that are resigning to, no, 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 you need to stay here 30 years. It's not that I don't want that to happen for my best people. It's just that comes with a price that you've only innovated and learned within your small little universe. And in a world that's highly competitive and being disruptors are coming out of nowhere, you, you know, you've really got to, you know, recognize that there is massive competitive advantage for you to have other people with new ideas coming in quickly. Steve, one of the things that Travis and I talk a lot about is uh, the multiple generations in the workplace. Mm -hmm. And what I'm hoping, you know, we could talk a little bit about is um, in your book, uh, which I highly recommend to anyone, uh, because from my vantage point, from a future of work uh, perspective, you you hit every point uh, that I see, you know, from a healthcare lens, that's absolutely critical. Um, but I will say that when you look at learning, 
one of the things you argue in the book, and I know you've argued also in your keynotes, that workers are more loyal to learning than they've ever been before. And I know that's a generational shift uh, because you're talking to two millennials. And and obviously when you talk to two, I mean, Travis is a little elder uh, millennial on this podcast, but when you're talking to two millennials, you know, you know, having been a CHRO that that, you know, there's a lot of words that are used to describe us. Um, and, you know, in the workplace today, that's a really interesting discussion. But I want to ask you to kind of expand on that. Okay. I I um, have a pretty unique perspective on generational discussions in the workplace when it comes to leadership. I think what we should be solving for in work is the ability to talk about hard stuff and having difference of opinion and different perspectives. That's a beautiful thing. The problem comes when we really get into generational difference deep is we're talking more about how we're different than how we're alike. And when we start doing that, we start finding why we're different and we start digging in and we're really good at that in America. Well, I'm right. You're wrong. I'm good. You're bad. Um, and so forth. And that's a very dangerous path to go down. So I don't like to get real deep and like, well, they are this because like I'm a tail into the baby boomer, but don't ever project all that stuff on me. You know, don't project it because I may look like I'm, you know, American and have a lot of privilege. And I do. I grew up in South Africa. You know, I grew up from a very, very, you know, lower middle class family. Like, you know, I've got a brother who's who has diagnosed with schizophrenia, bipolar disorder. Like it's not been a cakewalk for me. It has been easier that, for me than some, but I think we've got to be really careful and painting with broad brushes. I think the what I like about the conversation on generational differences is the appreciation of for diversity and creating a culture where we can talk about it and find best advantage, not let's focus on all the ways that we're different. You know, there's a woman, Lindsay Pollock. I would, I don't know if you know Lindsay, but if you, uh, if you can get her on your show, she's just phenomenal. She gave a talk on generational differences. And to be honest, I walked in going, mm, here we go. You know, another one of these talks and she blew me away. And one of the things she said was, because I have three teenage boys, she said, youth today can find independence at home and they don't need to go out of the house as much. Because I'm sitting here going like, "Why get out of the house. Like, what are you doing here? Because I never wanted to be home as a kid and we didn't have cell phones and TV or internet. And she said that it just, it it made sense. Like history all of a sudden made sense to me. Like, oh, they can date on the phone. They can hang out with friends. They can experience all kinds of, like so many forms of entertainment. They can play games. Um, And the pandemic served that, build that uh, capacity even more. But but I will say this. There's never been a generation that thought the younger generation was faster, hardworking, more diligent, and stronger. So, I mean, we've we've been dealing with this. We're always going to have it. It's not necessarily a bad thing. So how do we thrive, you know, and optimize for that? And that's probably why you're asking me the question, because I didn't go deep in my book on it for for some of the reasons that I I shared with you. It it does come up. I think the bigger hot topic right now is remote and and the challenges people have, you know, thinking that through um, versus in person. What about the learning aspect? Oh, the learning aspect. Yeah. I mean, that that is another beautiful um, opportunity the pandemic presented for us, you know, when you've got generational differences and life differences, think about all these organizations that hired former military the pandemic hits. Everyone's like freaking out. And these ex-military are like, 
pandemic's pandemic. I've seen much worse than this. Come on. It's okay. That's a fact. You know, that's a fact. And it, and it's really, and it's grounding and that reverse mentoring that, that can happen. And that's one thing, you know, if you're, if this is an issue for you and your organization, and you're listening to this right now, there are ways of doing reverse mentoring that are highly, highly valuable. Like I, I had someone volunteer to be my uh, reverse mentor when they saw how I was tweeting when I was at LinkedIn, like Steve, you're the head of HR. Your tweets are so lame. <laughs> she came up to me, this woman Flo, she's like, it's horrible. I'm going to show you how to do this. You're looking like a loser, you know, a nerd. And so I was like, okay, I didn't know that. Thank you. I was trying to be hip and cool. Um, and that was really super valuable to me that they had the, the confidence to do that. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, and like the, the generational, it, and I totally agree with you, Steve. If you want to learn how to do this, find some military person in your in your organization. Just ask them. We have the knowledge. I'm just just speaking from a place of bias, but I'm just saying it's not. It's it's <laughs> yeah. It's kind of it's kind of what we do. We deal with crisis. We deal with adversity, and uh, and we kind of we we figure out ways to overcome it. Um, so in, another question. Is, so your your book, we're going to kind of lean into your book okay. a little bit. You argue that, um, that our, our, our model of work is broken. What do leaders need to fix it and how can that be done? Yeah. So let's take the um, one really important dimension because uh, going into too many of them it would take too long. Let's take the fact that most work is teamwork. And if we recognize that our talent's probably not going to stay as long as we'd like it to and as it used to, what does that mean for teams and the anatomy of teams? Well, it probably means we need to onboard people faster. We need to build teams expecting that people are going to go, which means we need better knowledge sharing, better archiving of knowledge and situations, and faster rotations. And so that's one of the things that I think, take a good long look at that. If you're if someone leaves and they're the only person that knows how to do that, that's, um, you know, that, that's a self-inflicted wound. You know they're going to go at some point. So build for that. And then another thing that we, we found in Silicon Valley when, you know, it's the most competitive market for technical talent in the world, we did so much research at LinkedIn, like wh what are the signs that could predict when someone's going to go? And for engineers, we found most of them would leave at the end of a project or interestingly enough, when they had their first child. So oh, wow. Uh, engineers, generally speaking, are very loyal to the work. They don't they want to leave their teammates hanging. So what do you do? Six months before the project ends, hey, Travis, let's tell you about the next project we got lined up for you and how awesome it is. And let's have you start working on that while this one sunsets. Sound good? And then for the uh, the employees at all levels, you know, having that first child um, is changes your perspective of the, of the world. You know, where you want to be, who you want to be with, how you want to spend your time. And so at first we thought, oh gosh, are we not family friendly or is it our benefits? It wasn't that. It was that we hadn't thought how earth-shaking um, um, change of life this was. Let's let's bring some counselors in. Let's get bring some EAP folks in. Let's bring some doctors in to talk about how you know how to prepare yourself and be supportive, you know, of, of those people and maybe give them a little bit more time and recognize if they do come back after being on leave, maybe they want to do something different. And so, but also, you know, be mindful, like, okay, they're going to have their first child. Okay, let's just get ready because they may not want to come back and that's okay if that's in their life plan, right? And so those are two, uh, you know, several big things I think that I would think about. The, the teamwork one is the one that I'm starting to get really deep on right now because I think we've not, we've, we've started to recognize people aren't going to stay as long. And so what does that mean? Um, 
And I think the teams, uh, I'm starting to try to build that out a little bit more so that I can help organizations. And if you look at college basketball, I'm a huge basketball fan. Think of the changes that college basketball coaches have had to go through in the last three years or last, I don't know, 15 years. First, uh, one and done was introduced. So you can, you know, you can go to the pros used to be right out of high school and then said, no, you have to have at least one year between high school and being a professional athlete. So all these uh, great players would only stay at a school for a year. And all these coaches had built four years to teach you deep offense and deep defense and our team culture. And the biggest holdout was coach K at Duke. And he's like, I'm not going to be one of those coaches that hires one and done. That's not how we do it here. That's like, you know, blue devil blue. And then he started losing to teams that he was like, we should be killing these teams who had the one and done. So he's like, I got to figure it out. And so one of the things that he did was as soon as he, and he figured it out really well, as you know, uh, the best example was the Zion uh, Williamson, Cam Reddish and RJ Barrett, three, top 10 draft picks in one year. And what he did was he rethought how to build teams. He reconnected the, he connected his commitments, uh, his players who committed to the team uh, WhatsApp chat group right away. And he taught a simpler offense and a simpler defense. And I think that's just a, I like that story, especially when I'm dealing with an audience that kind of gets sports and, and gets all that. And the pandemic then served a new challenge for college coaches, which is, we're going to give you an extra year of eligibility and you can switch schools at any time without a penalty of sitting out a year. Now it's like every coach used to just recruit out of high school and now they have to recruit from every university on the planet. Um, and some of the players are saying, we're going to go together as a package, you know? Um, and so that's the kind of stuff that, you know, I think about, I think teams is probably the, where I would want to focus right now if I was an operator and spending some time. Yeah, no, that's, I mean, teamwork, that's, I mean, some of the major things I, I remember those days of college sports and people had to adjust. And like, I think it's the same thing for our teams nowadays. Mm -hmm. So Steve, no, thank you so much for, for your perspective. We love that you came on. Um, tell the people where they can find you. Where can people get a hold of you? Where can they look you up? Um, yeah. And thanks for having me, you guys. Um, the best place to find me is on my website, stevecadigan.com. You could find me obviously on LinkedIn. Uh, my book, Workwake, you can get anywhere. Uh, I do have somewhat of a humorous uh, channel on TikTok where I have a series called True Stories from Corporate America. I assure you they're all true. And I, if anything, I've watered them down a little bit uh, to try to protect the innocent. But uh, but yeah, again, it's, it's been really fun and I hope we get a chance to do this again. Yeah, no, absolutely. Thank you guys so much for joining. Thank you for, for all the, the contributions today. Thank you for joining the Holistic Leadership Podcast. We look forward to, to, to bringing you some more information and more leadership talks and more deep discussion on some of the hard topics. So thank you all, and we will see you next time.